Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods and philosophies, and more. The Prodigy Maker Show is primarily focused on high-performance junior training and how to help children maximize their potential. The program features intelligent insight from Chris and debate from leaders in the high-performance industry. The show can be watched live on Chris's Facebook profile, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Chris, Prodigy Maker Show, episode 22. We are live Thursday night. I'm here with my co-host, Sammy. Sammy, say hello, buddy. There he is, that Sammy, my academy dog. We're here for another show, our 22nd episode. I'm very excited to be here tonight. Although it's been a very long week and I had a good night on the courts. Just finished up with a few great lessons tonight, actually. So I'm, I'm pretty enthusiastic, feeling pretty good, enthusiastic that I had a great day on the courts. You know, sometimes you have a lesson where you have a breakthrough or you're able to you take a risk and you connect with a kid. And I had that experience tonight. So I'm feeling very rewarded by that. And I'm happy to welcome everyone to the show. We're going to be talking about Spanish tennis tonight. And also I'd like to talk about what makes a great coach and some of the pitfalls and some of the common mistakes that I see parents make when they're choosing a junior coach. So we'll be talking about that later. And as always, I'll be taking your questions. If you have any questions about junior development, if you have any questions about high performance tennis, if you have any questions about technique, these are some of my favorite topics. Uh, Also, of course, Spanish tennis, which is one of my favorite subjects as well. So Let's get into the program. I see some friends are signing on, and I, uh, some old, old friends of the show, and old personal friends, and also we'll probably get some new members in, in the community tonight. I'm trying to build this audience up, so we do this show every week, typically now on Thursday nights, and then also if you can't catch the show on Thursday nights, you can catch the replay on our YouTube channel which is just Chris Lewitt. You can search Chris Lewitt on YouTube and it'll come right up. So we have all of our shows, uh, the videos of the shows there. And then we have uh, the show is also rebroadcast as a podcast on all your favorite podcasting platforms. So thank you for tuning in any way that you like. And thank you for contributing to the show. I appreciate it if you can share the show with others. That's uh, a big one so we can grow our audience. So if you don't mind, there's a... there's a way to share a Facebook live feed if in your in your settings. If you go, if you go to, uh, there's an option to share live. You can share the feed with your friends, or later on, if you if you have uh, the, uh, if you enjoyed the show, you can also share it after the fact, of course. So thank you for sharing any way you can, and thank you for telling your friends about the show. So tonight, I want to talk about Spanish tennis and some of the things that make Spanish tennis great. Had a little online debate about whether the Spanish method is 
just a marketing gimmick and I don't think it is a marketing gimmick. I think there is something to the Spanish method. Obviously I've written a lot about it. I wrote The Secrets of Spanish Tennis which is I think the the number one book on the subject. I don't know anyone else who's written a book on, on Spain the, the, way, the way that I did. Hey Vanessa, how are you? Uh, old friend from from Vegas tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions on junior development, feel free to post them and I'll, I will answer. And in the meantime, I'm going to wrap a little bit about Spanish tennis. So for me, the, the biggest thing that I can tell you guys about Spain and Spanish tennis is that the method there, when, when, you, go, when you go there, or when I first went there, you see something very unique. And one of the things that is super unique is the ratio and the excessively long drilling. So the, the drilling system there, and I'm going to call it a system for lack of a better word. Some people want to debate, you know, the word system or method or philosophy or whatever you want to call it. The system there is, the drill system is unique. I've never seen anything like it. And it, it's, it's long. So what happened was in the 70s, there was this coach, William Pato Alvarez. And he was from Colombia. And he somehow ended up in the Barcelona area. And he started taking players under his wing. I believe he first worked in the Federation. Uh, the Spanish Federation, and he started taking players under his wing and coaching them privately. And he developed this very unique drill system, but I don't want to get too much into the weeds of the drill system unless you guys want to ask me questions about it. But what Pato did was he linked a number of exercises together into long series. So his exercises would go, you know, 20 balls at a minimum, and they could go into the hundreds of balls in a row, and that is, for me, the most singular aspect of Spanish tennis and what makes the Spanish method is that, that long, the long suffering drills, the drills that make you suffer, the drills that build endurance, and they don't stop. So typically in other countries that I, where I visited, the drills will stop at 8 or 10 or 12 shots. Because the coaches believe that that makes a better quality. And in Spain, they, especially in the Pato Alvarez system, we can talk more about the systems, the different, you know, the different methods there, uh, the different lineages there, because there's the Bruguera lineage, and then there's, like, there's the Nadal lineage, and they each method and approach, whatever word you want to use, is a little different but they have these similarities. And that's kind of what I wanted to write in my book. We wanted, I, I wanted to explain and distill the, the similarities that I saw across the country. And so I would definitely refer you to my book, The Secrets of Spanish Tennis, if you're interested in learning more about the commonalities. And I will, I will sort of summarize those here. But if you want to get into more depth, you could always check out the book, of course. And getting back to Pato... So, Pato developed a series of drills, which were relatively unique. And then he linked them together, 
And he kept going with them. Like, he wouldn't stop, you know, because the guy, and I studied with Pato, he's, he's a bit of a, a sadist. You know, he really wants to make his, his players suffer. And so the way that he figured out how to do it is to make the drills just keep going. Like a normal person, I want to say, who's, who's not crazy. I, I guess every great, every genius, every great person maybe has a little crazy in them, right? So he just decided to keep going in the drills until the player basically collapsed. So he would just keep going and keep going and keep going. And, the, you know, the player kind of look at him and he'd be like, what? We're just going to keep working here. And that was his genius, his hard work and his willingness to just continue. To continue. To sigue, like they say in Spain, sigue, sigue, sigue. Continue, continue, continue. That's a very common philosophy and that's part of the method that you see in Spain but you see it all around the country not just in the Sanchez Casal Pato Alvarez lineage or model of training but that is where it originated back in the 70s Pato came to Spain and he started doing something different he started bringing these baskets of balls and he started pushing players in long sets with Dozens and dozens of repetitions, sometimes hundreds of repetitions. And that, I believe, is one of the genius aspects of, of Spanish tennis. And so when people say, okay, what makes Spanish, what is Spanish tennis? I think you have to go back to that, to those seminal years. You know, those, there's a, there's a giant inflection point that happened when, when William Pato Alvarez decided to set up his home base in Spain and specifically in Barcelona, in the Barcelona area. So I think you have to understand some of the history and you have to know a little bit about Pato Alvarez, William Pato Alvarez and his work and his drill system and his philosophy, his approach. So, hey guys, it's great to see you checking in. I see some old friends waving. Thank you so much. And I also see some... Fans of the book, thank you. Larry R. Klein says, great book. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it. Appreciate the shout-outs, guys. And my buddy Gordon Paul, who is an excellent coach, has come to a lot of trainings with me. Gordon, I've been working on uh, some new trainings coming up. I'm going to post those for everyone soon at my um, uh, new uh, coach trainings at my club. Anyway, it's good to see you guys. So, 1970s, this guy, Pato Alvarez, he, he comes in. I mean, it may, it may have been even later 60s. I don't know. I don't have the exact date, but he was there in the 70s, you know, working for the Federation, more or less. And then he went out on his own privately. So around that time, there's a guy in Barcelona, and his name is Luis Bruguera. Luis Bruguera was a pretty good player, probably like a college-level player, who, who didn't make it as a pro. You know, he, he prob I guess he wasn't good enough. You know, like, like a lot of people, he was a good club player and a good college-level player. And Luis got into coaching. And so I think Luis is a little bit 
younger than Pato. So I, I think Luis is in his mid to late 60s, if I had to guess, and Pato is probably nearing mid-70s. I, I, I have to... I could find out the exact dates, guys. I'm sorry. But, but I think there's a slight generational gap, a little bit of a gap there. But basically, they're contemporaries in the sense that they were both coaching at a similar moment in time in Spain. And specifically, very close to each other in Barcelona. So, Luis Bruguera starts coaching also in the Barcelona area. And he starts developing his son, Sergi Bruguera. And this is also dovetailing with Pato in, in the, the scope of time. So this is maybe, you know, er, late, late uh, 70s, Luis is starting to coach, if I get my, my timeline right, and then early 80s. Sergi, I think, is my age, so... No, Sergi's a little older than me. So Sergi was coming up in the 80s, and I think he won the Spanish Nationals as a junior in the late 80s. Could have been 88 or 86. I got, you know, I'm sorry, guys. I haven't. You know, I did all this research for my book maybe five or six years ago, so it's not fresh in my mind, but, but I, I could dig it up if I had to. But basically the timeline is, so Luis is coming in a little bit after Pato, and Luis is a big student of the game, and he has a brilliant mind as well. And what he does is he also decides to create a drilling system that goes on and on and on. And so you have these two giants in, in Spain, these two giant heavyweights. I would, I would definitely call them genius coaches who transformed the teaching system in Spain. They transformed the game in Spain and the way people trained, the way coaches operated, and they created a common, a common philosophy. And they also sometimes shared drills, not literally shared, but whether, whether by purposely copying each other or mimicking each other or just... Coincidentally, a lot, some of their drills overlapped. So the Bruguera system and the Alvarez system in some ways overlap some drills. And in some ways, the drills are a little bit different. But one of the commonalities in their drilling system was this idea of suffering through many, many endless repetitions. And for me, that's what I see as the heart and soul of the Spanish method, the willingness to keep going by the coach and the player, the willingness to suffer. And the suffering comes through attrition, it comes by attrition, and it comes through this long series of, of drills, mainly drills from the basket. But there are other drills that you can also do Live, the coach can become a wall, which is another aspect of the, of the Spanish method that is very common all across the country that you don't see in other, I've never seen in other um, places, the sense that, in the sense that the coach becomes a wall and the player has to keep going forever against the wall with endless uh, repetition until the player collapses or, or the player 
survives. And for me, that, that, is, that, is, what the, that is what the the heart of the Spanish method is. And I don't think everyone really understands that, who's out there, because they've never been to Spain and never studied with those guys. They don't really know the details of the philosophy and approach of those legends. Because what happened is, as, as William Pato Alvarez started to have success starting in the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, and Luis Bruguera started to have success in the 80s, and when, when his son, Sergi, won the French Open, it was a really big deal in Spain. It was a huge, huge moment in Spain because there had been a long, long drought uh, of grant of they they hadn't had they didn't have any grand slam winner on the men's side for over i believe it was over 17 years so sergi came along and was a spanish junior champion and then sergi won roland garros in 1993 and this was an incredible moment for spain and m- most of the coaches and Tennis families in Spain wanted to know what Luis was doing with his son to make him so good. You know, obviously, that's how it works in every country with every prodigy and every legendary player. You know, everyone in that country wants to know what they did to get really good at tennis and how they succeeded. So that's what happened in Spain. But at the same time, you had a contemporary of Luis a little bit older, started a little before Luis, William Pato Alvarez, in the same city, by the way, which is remarkable in and of itself, the same city. And Pato was also developing a lot of really good players. Now, he didn't have any singles Grand Slam winners. He had players like Emilio Sanchez and Sergio Casal, who went on to found the Sanchez Casal Academy. But he they they did win the doubles grand slam. You know, they won several grand slams in du- in doubles. And they were the number one doubles team in the world. So they were competitors. They were contemporaries and competitors. And they were both top dogs in Spain in that era, going back into the eighties and the early nineties. They were big they were like I said the grandfathers of Spanish tennis. They were the, the, the gurus in Spain, the, the, the most successful coaches of the time. And you could, you could maybe argue that Luis had more success because he, he, he broke the drought of, of the singles Grand Slam winner for the men. But, you know, it's, um, the bottom line is they were both revered and everyone wanted to know what they were doing. And so you got to get back to that source. That uh, You have to understand that origin to understand what is the Spanish method. Because the Spanish method is not just a, a catchphrase used for marketing. It, it goes back to, that, to the philosophy of those guys, those, those two guys, and their drill system. And, and their approach to the game. So another thing that makes, makes up a big 
important part of the Spanish method is a focus on fitness and a focus on being in incredible shape, physical shape, and to have this incredible endurance and ability to run and to stay healthy through injury prevention. So that was another obsession that Pato and Luis had. So you have this unique approach to the game in terms of drilling, and you have this obsession with fitness and getting an incredible condition. And so there, for me, you have another key to what is the Spanish method, those, those two things. And of course, there's more. As I mentioned in my book, I talked about uh, six aspects of the Spanish way. I call them secrets, but they're not really secrets anymore, I guess. And I, uh, I can list them now for, for those who haven't read the book. Basically, what you see around the country is a focus on uh, movement, a focus on a big acceleration building, with the f especially with the forehand, so weapon building, a focus on consistency, a focus on defense, a focus on physical conditioning, which is what I just mentioned, and a focus on suffering. So those were the six planks, the six posts or chapters in my book the, that, that, I, that I, during my travels and studies in Spain, I felt comfortable stating were the, the, the ethos, the, the, the core of the Spanish method or the Spanish approach or the Spanish way or the Spanish whatever, whatever you guys want to call it, okay? The Spanish system. People get all wrapped up in the words, the semantics of it, but whatever you want to call it, right? So, but when you get down to the brass tacks, it's, it's that, that willingness to go forever in the drill, you know? That is, for me, so important such an important element and it gets back to suffering it gets back to how do you make your players suffer are there other ways to make a player suffer sure you can yell at the players and make a short drill really intense it's a different kind of suffering it's it's more of an anaerobic type of suffering in spain what pato and luis decided was the best way to make a player suffer is aerobically and it's also, by the way, the safest way to make a player suffer, which a lot of people discount or they don't, they don't realize that when you do a long, slow, rhythmic set of drills and you, you get the repetitions very high, it's very safe. It's not, I don't want to say it is very demanding, but it's demanding of the body in, in a way that typically has a low incidence of injury versus short bursting type drills that are very low repetition but very explosive. Uh, an analogy might be working out in the gym doing a, you know, a one to five repetition uh, set of bench press, you know, very close to your maximum, so very high intensity versus doing 
uh, a bench press of, of 15 or 20 or, or 30 reps, which is not as intense, but will definitely fatigue you in a different way. It'll also fatigue your mind more because it requires more uh, attention and it's going to be uh, you're going to be working for a longer period of time so it builds sort of a patience and a discipline in the mind as well um, so that's sort of the metaphor that I would use and and Luis I spent a lot of time studying with Luis Bruguera so Luis told me he's told me many times that he studied with Harry Hopman, the legendary Australian coach, who I think in many ways was a, a predecessor to the Spanish to the Spanish reign, a predecessor to the Spanish greats in terms of coaching and in terms of philosophy and system, because Hopman was known for being very tough and emphasizing physical superiority, physical fitness. And Luis was a big fan of Hopman's and went to study with him. He told me the story. I, I think he went to study with him in, in Florida, in the U.S. And he said he tried to learn as much as he could from Hopman. And when he came back to Spain, he decided to do some similar exercises, but to make the drills go on and on and on and on. That was his solution to making the system of Hopman better, you know, in Luis Bruguera's mind. That, that's, how, that's how he saw it. That's how he, he, he stood on the shoulders of giants, as they say. So that's what Luis Bruguera believed. And Pato Alvarez was doing the same, just a stone's throw away in the same city, the same era. And so this created a wave of revolution, like a revolutionary wave across the tennis world in Spain, a tidal wave. And all of the other coaches in Spain, I don't want to say all, but most, revered these guys and wanted to le learn from these guys, or at the minimum, you know, wanted to find out what they were doing so they could compete better with them because they were on top in Spain. And Spain is not that big a country and the system of Pato and Luis in one form or another basically became the de facto training method in Spain. Now were there other great coaches in Spain? Yeah, in other parts of Spain. For example, there was this guy, you may have heard of him, Tony Nadal, bringing up his nephew in Mallorca, which is not far from Barcelona by the way. And Tony has a slightly different approach, but to me seems heavily influenced by Luis Bruguera's philosophy and probably also by Pato's. How could he not have been? Because those guys were they were the man they were the men of the time. They were the dudes. You know, they were killing it. You get what I'm trying to say. So That's what Spanish tennis is. That's what the Spanish method is. That's the heart of it. You have to understand the history and get a little bit granular in the detail to understand what they do that's special. 
And people are just ignorant. You know, people just t- say, oh, that's just marketing shtick. Oh, that's just commercialism, you know, blah, 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 catchphrases and sales pitches. And there is some of that now, but there, there truly is a Spanish method that's different than, than anywhere else in the world. A Spanish philosophy that is unique. A Spanish drill system that is unique. And now it's, it's changing a little because there are, are new generations of coaches who are evolving the method. But that's historically accurate. It's, it's, it's historically accurate. What I just described and summarized is, to the best of my ability, historically accurate. And I think it's very accurate to say that there is a Spanish style, a Spanish approach, and and that's sort of at the heart of it. You have the long drilling, you have the focus on fitness, you have a focus on making a player suffer through long drilling, and then the other aspects that I mentioned that are part of my book. So... To me, it's very clear, and I hope that helps clear it up for you guys. And if you have any questions about Spanish tennis or the Spanish method, please let me know. The only caveat or warning I would, I would tell you all in the audience is that it's, it's not accurate to say that one great coach in Spain is the Spanish method. Because in my mind, the Spanish style or approach or system is an amalgamation of the legends, especially Pato Alvarez and Luis Bruguera. So there's, there's, there's been a mixing and I look at the common underpinnings of those great coaches and their philosophies. I don't think it's accurate for just one lineage to claim uh, to claim that they are Spanish tennis. And, and there are some lineages that, that are now doing that. And I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to get too much into the details or name names, but there, there is some crass commercialism going on now. And, you know, there are certain lineages that, that want to stake a claim uh, as as the, the the rightful owners of Spanish tennis, and and that that's not really what I'm all about. I, I don't try to be partisan like that. I try to be impartial, and I try to share with my audience and my readership and my viewers as clear a picture as I can make of it in an unbiased way. So. We could get even more into the history and talk about Tony Nadal and Tony's method and Tony's philosophy, and that, that is interesting as well. And then there are some other greats. You know, there, there, are, there are greats in, in other parts of the country, down in Valencia and Alicante. So my focus is on what happened in Barcelona in 1970s, 1980s with Luis Bruguera and, and William Pato Alvarez. That's always been my focus. And that, that's, that's the crux of my, of my book, The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. That was the, 
the history that I laid out, and that was the argument that I made at the time. And I still believe that argument very strongly. So Jim Kane says, Yes, amigo, read your insightful book, Saw Pato, Work a Player in Person. Emilio seemed proud of the fact Pato made him suffer when I spoke to him at the PTR conference. Wonder if the sign of the times now would be conducive to pushing continuous suffering players like Pato Bruguera. No, Vince Lombardi style, no doubt some critics would show up on the scene claiming abuse, etc. Yeah, these, these coaches push very hard, but I think it's not abusive, this type of drilling. If you see it, yeah, I guess, you know, there, there is a, a it, could, it could be called abusive, I suppose, if they're wrong, uh, if people got the wrong impression by watching, but it, it's, tough, it's tough work. Suffering is, is not pretty. When you see a coach making a player suffer on the court, it's not going to be pretty. And sometimes that's what you need to extract the greatness. It's interesting for me that in my work, I found that some players, they don't really respond well to that endless drilling. And some players just love it. They really, really dig into it and they enjoy the suffering. And they feel a challenge and they feel rewarded. They feel it makes them stronger and better. And I have some players who are more, they're my live ball players. They're players who, they don't, they don't get as much out of that style of, of drilling. And so I try to actually customize my training based on the individual in front of me. And I try to adjust the type of drills that I use based on the learning style and personality of my students. Now that's something that Pato Alvarez and Luis Bruguera certainly don't do. And I've taken many teams to the Bruguera Academy, players from the U.S., my players, who I've known very well. And it's been interesting to see how some of the personalities in, on my team really love the Bruguera style of endless drilling, and some of them not so much. And I would submit to you guys that the, the mind, the type of mind, the, the type of brain, the brain type, of a player who likes to do the Spanish style of drilling, the endless drilling, the endless reps. It, it's the type of person who needs the repetition. The repetition builds them confidence. And they don't mind the, the dreary, the drudgery, the dreary aspect of it. The, because the repetition can be boring for many kids and it can be it can lack creativity so my my create my creative players the ones who love to play and and are always thinking about tactical options and 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 they like to, to compete they they sometimes don't really appreciate that that old school uh, Pato Alvarez style or, or even the Bruguera style you know they're not the type of kids that like to go to have me volley as the wall and they want to see how many they can get on the wall I have some students that they don't really care they're like oh the wall I don't want to do that and you have a choice as a coach you can say okay you need to do that because that is what's going to make you strong or you can maybe find another way to push them
that might be more conducive to their learning style. So that's what I found in my own work. As I've experimented with the Spanish style, I've noticed that there are some personalities that really gravitate towards that style and they love it. It's so good for them to keep going, to keep going, to keep going for them, to, to push them past, where, past limits that uh, they set for themselves and, and, and to break through barriers for them in terms of how many balls that they're able to hit. It makes them so strong and they feel better at the end versus some kids who when you, when you go a long time, they just, they just feel it's, it's a bit of a waste for them. It's enough for me to maybe do 10 or 15 or 20. And for them, it, it can be a little more quality over quantity. So I really think that in some ways, and I've, I've also talked about this with, with some coaches in Spain and some even I, w I would love to have this discussion with Luis himself, who I'm still close with. But I really think they could be more player-centered in the way they, they do their drills. You know, not every kid maybe has to do 800 balls in a row on the wall, or not every player needs to do such and such amount of baskets on a daily basis in the Pato Alvarez system. You know, maybe some players can do a little more live ball, maybe more games approach, you know, more, more gameplay and tactical that way, rather than just rote drilling. And Pato Alvarez was very rote drilling focused in terms of patterns. You know, one of the differences between the Bruguera system and the Alvarez system is the Alvarez system has fixed, mostly fixed patterns that the players have to follow. So you play this one cross, you play this one down the line, and so on and so forth. Everything is fixed and you just do them over and over again. I it reminds me a lot of of uh, religion and church you know there are some churches that have a very fixed liturgy and you go and it's the same type of worship every week and like for example i i'm episcopalian and oftentimes in the episcopal church it's the same routine every week and I've been to many other churches where sometimes they mix it up and the worship service changes and has a little bit of different flow to it. And in, some people love a church like that and some people don't. They find it sort of repetitive and boring. And for me, that is the Spanish system, especially the system of Pato Alvarez. It's very repetitive and, and some people find a great comfort in that. I know many Episcopalians and Catholics too who find a great comfort in the repetitive nature of the worship and litur lit liturgy. And I know many people who are turned off by that. They don't like that type of church. And to each his own. So, you know, go, go where you feel more comfortable. But I think it gets back to brain type and personality. So what I try to do in my work, in my practice as a coach, is to try to read my player and offer them a, a drill, a drill system and a, a philosophical approach that fits their personality best and their learning style. I need to make them tough, but maybe I don't need to make them tough with 
200 balls in a row in a fixed pattern. Maybe I can find another way to make them tough. Maybe if they're very creative and they love to play games and compete, I can do more games based. I can do more competitive uh, point situations with them and I can find a way to make them suffer in another, uh, in another aspect of their training, maybe with, their, maybe with the off-court trainer. Or maybe if, I, if I, I can have them play someone who's very solid, like I'm, I still play at a very high level, I can make a kid suffer just by hitting with them and it's a little more fun for them to do it that way. You know, if I, I can grind the kid down, I just did that tonight. You know, I took uh, several players in our group and I just basically rallied with them working on accuracy and control, but I never missed. So it's kind of like what Pato Alvarez was doing, but not with a basket. And it, it pushed the players in, in a way that was maybe more interesting than just uh, straight drilling from a basket because it was live ball. And also what I could do is I could maybe sometimes throw in a point play, you know, because I'm rallying with them. I could maybe throw in a, uh, I could say, let's play, you know, point, let's play. And that could be a little more, little more fun way or interesting way for that player to suffer with me. So just things like that. That's what I've been working on in my own coaching world here in, in New York and, and in Vermont at our camp. So... I don't know if that interests you guys, but it's definitely something that I've wanted to discuss. And I'm glad we finally got it on video and we can, you know, I can share this with, with folks and we can get some good debate going about it. But let me start to move on to the, the second topic of the night, which is how to find the right coach for your kid. You know, this is speaking a lot to parents, but I think... Uh, others will also find it interesting and maybe some common mistakes that parents make when choosing a coach. And I'm seeing this a lot. So let me just go through a few and then been a heck of a long day. I think I'll, I'll join Sammy for a nap. Sammy is just fast asleep right now. So let's, let's talk first about mistakes that parents make. And some of the mistakes, so, well, I'll give you the first biggest mistake that I see, parents. Parents assume that when someone played at a high level, that they're going to be a great coach. And this is the most absurd myth or fallacy in possibly in junior tennis, because there's some truth to the fact that someone who played really well probably has more knowledge than someone who didn't play well. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But at the same time, there are many examples of great coaches who never played or played very poorly. And there are, there are, Something to be said about someone who, who didn't play at a high level, who's still really hungry to develop top players. And sometimes that hunger is not there in someone who, who made it as, as, a, as a pro or whatever level we're talking about here. Let me explain a little more. So why does someone who played at the pro level 
have more knowledge generally than, than a coach who didn't. Because they usually have access to the best coaches in their respective country, in their federation. They get the most attention from the greatest minds in the sport. So the more talented the kid is, usually they get access and they spend a lot of time with the best minds, the best tennis minds in their respective country. So that automatically is an incredible resource for those kids as they're growing up. And that means that after a professional career, or if they don't make it on the tour for whatever reason, they have this wellspring of knowledge that is very valuable and unique because the less talented kids usually don't have access to the greatest coaching minds when they're young. So I hope, hope that makes sense. So in, in that respect, the best players have this incredible, valuable knowledge, or they can. If they listened, and if they are able to take that, what they, what they learn as a kid, and apply it to, uh, and, and help others with it, sometimes you have really good athletes, really talented athletes who, they don't actually know how they do it. Maybe they had access to all the greatest tennis minds in their country, but they didn't really listen that much, and they didn't need to listen that much because they were just kind of naturals. And so it would be a big mistake as a parent to hire someone like that to coach your kid who maybe isn't a natural, because that kid probably needs someone, <coughs> someone who understands how to learn the game when they're not super gifted and they can't just pick things up with the snap of their fingers. So that's important to know as a parent, you know. Well, does my, does my coach have a lot of experience competing? Now, in that respect, again, a professional player or former professional player, high-level player, is going to have more experience competing at a high level against many different high-level competitors than someone who only played, let's say, high school tennis or someone who never competed at all. But that doesn't, again, necessarily mean that they're able to transmit that knowledge to their young charges, their, their students. But those are definitely the pros of working with someone who's a great former player. But it's ridiculous, it's absurd for, for, for a parent to just hire someone because they played really well. Because you don't, you got to do a little more digging. You got to find out: Can that person teach? You know, can they transmit their knowledge? Can they inspire a young kid? Do they have any experience with young kids? And and we'll we'll talk about that also, because that's probably the uh, the second biggest mistake is is hiring a a coach who doesn't have experience with 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 your niche player, your niche of player. Anyway, so many times <coughs> players who made it at a very high level, they're not hungry to develop juniors again. They, they, they sort of did it. They, they made it to the big show and they, they lose their motivation. So that is something to be to guard against as a parent. Watch out for the, the former top 100 player 
or top 150 player or number one junior in the world or whatever who's just sort of milking it. You know, there, there's a lot of examples of guys like that who they were great, but, you know, they're not that hungry. They, they want a cushy job, maybe. That's why you got to watch out for the country club coaches. Those are guys who went into a career field that that is not that demanding, and they don't want they want to be in a cushy place where things are a little easier. And so that's why I always have I'm always suspicious of guys who are working in a country club. I'm suspicious of their hunger. Not always the case, but a lot of times those coaches have lost their hunger and their passion. And especially if they already made it as players, they may not have the passion to go through the whole series again, the whole timeline with a young kid, you know. And to be honest, I, I don't hire coaches who work in country clubs. If I see on a resume that a guy worked for a while in a country club, it's a huge red flag for me as a as a club owner and as an academy owner. I, I would never hire a guy who was comfortable in a country club unless they, they had a really good reason why they were trying to get out. Like maybe they tried it and they want to leave, you know. So anyway, that's off topic. But as a parent, please watch out for coaches who are in country clubs. And, and yeah, look for a coach who has a high-level playing experience. That's fantastic. But make sure they can transmit that knowledge and that they're still hungry. You know, they have a passion. And also they have a passion for learning and education because in my experience, some of the guys who are really good, they were really good players or are really good players, they, a lot of times they think they know everything. So you get guys with ATP points or higher, you know, guys who had big-time world rankings. A lot of them have huge egos, and they, they just think they know everything. They don't want to read any biomechanics research. They don't want to read about anything, really. Sports psychology, latest fitness methods. They think they got it all, especially if they were on the ATP tour or WTA tour. They basically think, they, they they figured everything out and they know more than everyone and they do know a lot they do know a lot from that those experiences and they get to work with amazing people on the ATP tour some of the greatest minds in tennis are on the ATP and WTA professional tours so they have they have an incredible access to that knowledge but sometimes it, there's like a hubris associated with these people and, and hubris leads to nemesis. They don't want to keep improving. They don't want to keep studying. They don't feel they need to learn more. And so those coaches will be limited. Parents need to watch out for that. You know, especially coaches who are getting older. Maybe they played on the tour many years ago, decades ago. And if they haven't done any continuing ed or they haven't been keeping up on their knowledge of the tour. I mean, some guys played pro decades ago and they haven't been on the pro tour for, for years and they're really a little bit out of touch with what's going on with the modern game. You have to watch out for that too. Retired uh, pros who haven't been around the high level of the game in a long time, for example. Okay. On the flip side, so let me put in a word for my brothers and sisters who didn't play 
very well. Now, as a parent, I would be very wary to hire a coach who didn't play and didn't know how to play because I think many times, I would say most of the time, they're just not going to have the knowledge or back, background to, to develop a top junior. Now, there are some exceptions to that. My focus is on high performance. Everything that I'm saying here is for high performance. You, if you're listening to this show, you want to know how to find a good coach for your junior because I'm assuming you want to develop that player into a top college player or a professional player. You're looking for someone who can do high performance. That's my angle. That's my niche. So if you're just looking for a coach for your kids to have fun at the local club or you know, introduce them to the game, I'm, that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about someone who can wire and inspire your kid for greatness. So, I'm going to stand up for the little guys now and girls, ladies and gents who never really played. So, one thing that these types of coaches bring to the table is they're super hungry. They know they didn't make it. They were never, maybe great athletes. They, they were never... They never held up a lot of trophies, and so they're, they have to earn it. They're usually more humble, and they're, they have a great passion and hunger to develop a top player because they never did it, right? So there are a lot of, there are a lot of coaches out there who didn't play, but they're so hungry and so passionate that they make up for it with their intensity, with their ability to motivate and communicate. They may be natural teachers. And then through a, a, a relentless pursuit of education. And that is, I think, for parents, something you, you got to look for in a coach, someone who's relentlessly educating themselves. So you might want to know if they've if they're familiar with the latest research in biomechanics or sports psychology or physical training, you would want to know if they are keeping up with their certifications. Are they doing, are they doing CEUs? You know, some coaches haven't done a CEU. They don't know what a CEU, CEU is. They can't even say it like me. You know, so you're looking for coaches who keep up on their education and who are, have an insatiable desire to learn and to keep learning and to get better. So that's one thing I would tell you uh, as a parent, as something that I look for in, in the coaches. And I have uh, three going on. I'm going to have four kids real soon. And this is something that I look for in, in a coach in any sport. <coughs> the best possible combination is a coach who played high level as high a level as possible and who has the insatiable hunger, still has the passion to develop a player and the insatiable desire to keep learning and getting better. As a parent, you should be looking for that type of coach. So they combine both the knowledge and the experience, having worked with uh, great, brilliant minds in the game and also the, the, the practical side of things where they're, they're keeping up on their studies and their sports science 
And also, are they inspirational? Are they great communicators? And can they really teach? You know, sometimes you get these coaches who are really knowledgeable. They have a tremendous resume and they're just a dud on the court. You know, like you get them out on the court and they, they don't have a great charisma and they're not able to lead little kids to the championship. So the greatest junior coaches that I've spent time with, they have that Pied Piper quality. They can lead these children. They can motivate and inspire a child. And that comes from communication primarily and, and the, ability, the ability to inspire. It's, it's, it's part of, it's charisma. It's, it's dynamism. It's, it's the magnetic quality the X factor that makes a coach great that that some I don't know if you can teach that you either have it or you don't so look for that X factor in a coach as well because that can make up for a lot but if you can get the X factor former high-level player so they have some really good experience and an, uh, an insatiable curiosity and appetite for continuing education. You've got a really strong package there for your junior player. I would definitely advise you guys to look for, for those, I guess, those three big qualities. You know, as I'm wrapping here, I'm thinking about what, what I would look for in a coach for my children. And, and I guess that would be the, those would be the first three. And there's a few other things, too, that I look for, like, a big one for me is character and values. What is that coach going to teach you? That coach is going to spend a lot of time with your children or your child. Are they going to be a good role model? Are they going to be a good influence? You know, so that's another thing that I think is very high on the priority list for, for parents to look at. And what you usually see is parents will have a coach who sort of they can check the box on one or two of the things that I mentioned, but it's not a home run. And so there's, there's a deficit there. There's something missing there. And, you know, you do the best you can. In some areas, there, there's no one really great available. And you just have to do the best you can. Maybe the parent can make up for, for some deficiencies in the coach. For example, a coach who's maybe young and is a very good player, accomplished player, former top college player, or former professional player, they may not have the sports science background. They may not be even, a, a, maybe they might, might not be the greatest role model for the kid, but the parent could be on site and working with that coach on the court a lot with their child and sort of <coughs> run interference on that and sort of make it all come together and sort of fill in for the deficits that the coach has. So many times when you see a parent working alongside a coach in tandem, oftentimes the parent is trying to supplement what the coach lacks or trying to complement the coach in some way. And as a duo, they do an, they're able to succeed and provide an incredible experience for the player. But... the coach the coach hire it's, itself is still a flawed hire the parent is doing everything they can to make it work so you have to decide as a parent are you able to invest 
that much time into your kid. And some of the, some many families that I work with, they, they are, the parents are really dedicated and they want to be involved like that. <coughs> but certainly as a parent, you'd want to try to hire someone who has as few deficits as possible. And you want to be knowledgeable about what those deficits are so you can fill in the missing areas, right, as best you can. So I was getting to the the next biggest mistake or the, the second biggest mistake that I see parents make. And we may have to kind of end the show like that because I think I'm going way, way over time. We're trying to keep the show to about an hour or so. But this has been a really good talk, guys. I appreciate you all tuning in. I appreciate all the waves. I appreciate seeing some old friends here. Hey, guys, thank you so much for waving and listening. But another big mistake that parents make (coughs) is they get the wrong coach for their junior kid. So if I had a dollar for every parent who told me, oh, I got this great coach. He... He just got off the tour, and he's been working with so-and-so, and so-and-so, and and now we've hired him to train my eight- or nine-year-old. I mean, come on. That dude has no experience working with young children. You know, working with an ATP player for, for years is completely different than working with a child. Another example Oh, we've got this great coach for Johnny or Sarah. He's a Division I college coach. He's got a lot of experience. He's had 20 years of winning teams. You know, okay, I'm sure that guy is a great coach, but not probably not for your 9 or 10 or 11-year-old because that guy spends, or, 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 or girl, spends all, all of, they spend their time coaching older teenagers, you know, and 20-somethings in college. You know, they don't have the the years of experience training young kids. So I tell parents all the time, when you're looking for a great junior developer for your child, please, please look for experience developing juniors. You should look for a track record. I could put that as priority number three. Make sure your coach has a proven track record and can give you references. Talk about this all the time. There's a lot of con artists out there. There's a lot of shuck and jive. There's a lot of false claims, fake news. Tennis coaches are, in many ways, are like used car salesmen. They claim a lot of of stuff. They do a lot of things to get the sale. Sometimes unethical things. And and there are many, many examples of coaches who make false claims about working with the player or they bolster their resume, they bulk up their resume with with players who they really just had, uh, they didn't have a serious relationship with. You know, they were sort of affiliated with the player or maybe they, they, they were a hitting partner with the player, but then they sort of burnish their resume to make it look like they were more played a more significant role in the player's career and parents need to be very wary of 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 that and they, they need to do their due diligence when hiring a coach i don't i think most parents just believe you know what the coach says you know ask for a reference 
Say, hey, can I talk to that player's parents? Can I talk to that player if they're an adult? You know, can I get, can I get, do you have any letters of reference? Can I get the parents' emails or their phone number to call them? You know, I do that all the time. I, I, I put it, I pride myself on, on being able to give anyone who asks as many references that they, as they would like. You know, because I built up good relationships with, with these families over the years. I have these, these relationships and I, they're, they're valuable. You know, they, they mean a lot to me, not just on a personal level, but they mean a lot to me as a coach. Especially as a coach who, you know, I played Division One, and I played on the pro circuit, but didn't really make it. You know, I didn't make it as an ATP player. So for me, it's, it's super valuable to have a track record, a proven track record, so that when people, you know, when people have questions about my my ability they want to know who are you you know you, you weren't you weren't a famous player it's very important to have those references to show your track record and your ability to develop a kid and parents should look for that all right so that's kind of how i see it there's Probably a lot more I could get into it with parents and finding a good junior coach, but those those were the big three. So remember, if if a coach has a lot of experience at the college level or the pro level, that doesn't always necessarily translate to junior development. And look for a coach who has a track record of junior development. That means someone who's, if you have an eight-year-old, look for someone who's taken an eight-year-old and you know, train them for many years and prepare them to be a, a top whatever, whatever you're looking for, top in the country, got them to the ITF circuit, got them to the pro level or top college level. I mean, make sure you're, you're working with someone that can give you a reference, a person you can talk to who can prove that this actually happened, that they actually, that this coach spent time with this player, because so many coaches embellish. Uh, I use that word euphemistically. You know what I'm talking about. Another word is, you know, some coaches straight up lie about players that they've trained, players that they're working with. You know, they straight up, straight up fake news, people. So please watch out for that. And yes, look for a coach who played at a high level, as high a level as you can find. But also look for a coach who's hungry, who has an insatiable appetite, not only to develop players, but to learn and continue their education. Look, look for a coach who's still passionate. And look for a coach who can communicate everything that they've learned over their career. Because there are many examples of great, great players who don't really communicate their knowledge very well. They're not able to transmit their knowledge and experience in a way that, that inspires and spurs transformation in a student. So, guys, that's how I see it. Let me know your thoughts. If you have more questions about how to find a great coach for your kid... I help parents all the time with that, and a lot of the parents are looking to interview me and understand my background, what I do, 
and players I've worked with and how I can make a difference for their kid. And to be honest, if I don't feel that it's a good fit, I will usually try to educate the parents and, and, and find them someone who's a better fit. Another just, up, uh, just kind of popped into my head on, along the same along the same subject is maybe a one more quick priority is a tactical coach versus a technical coach. You know, some coaches are very tactically and strategically oriented and they're great for older players who are transitioning to the pro tour or older players who are traveling a lot and they need that type of coach. And then there are other coaches who are very, very technical, biomechanics-based. And those are usually the coaches you want to develop the nuts and bolts, the hardware of your junior, of your player when they're young. So as a parent, you got to know. That, that's a really important question to ask. I educate parents a lot. And I, I, one of the first, that's one of the big ones. Just Sorry, popped in my head there. Really important one is you got to ask a coach. What what are your strengths? Are you more of a tactical guy or are you more of like the nuts and bolts guy who likes to get into the details and and fix technique? Because that's really important depending on where your player's at. If the player's young and is not fully technically formed, it's very important to get a technician. If the player is a little older, maybe uh, you know, let's say 12 or 13 or 14, or 15, 16, 17 transitional pro, then it's really not that important to have a great technical knowledge. Your coach doesn't need to have that. Your, the coach is mainly a motivator and, and, and an inspirational force and a tactician and, and you know, maybe some other aspects of a, of a traveling coach, you know, like an organizer, a planner. Sometimes a coach is a business manager. You know, things like that. So there are other skill sets that are important depending on the level of your player and what the player needs. So parents, please, please do your due diligence and ask these questions. It's crazy to, to have to hire an amazing tactical coach who has a great resume of working with players at the ATP level to teach your kid a forehand. Right? That's crazy. But you see that all the time. I'll leave you with one more parting thought. Something that drives me nuts. Is just because your coach was like top 100, but my coach was 150, doesn't make your coach better than my coach. So I'm really tired of parents like talking like that. And you hear that talk all the time at tournaments and stuff. You know, oh yeah, we're working with so-and-so, yeah, he was top 50 in the world. Oh, really? Well, we're working with so-and-so, and he or she was top 30 in the world. <laughs> That's crazy talk, okay? Yeah, at, at that level, that, those Players have a lot of experience no matter what. I mean, is it amazing to work with maybe a former top 10 player? Like if you could get a lesson with Emilio Sanchez, who was number six in the world or seven in the world, is that amazing? Yeah, it's amazing. But just because 
Emilio was seven in the world doesn't mean he's an automatically better coach than whomever. Sergio Casal, who was like top 30 in the world. Or, or anyone else, you name it, any, you know, any other former player. You know, it's crazy to compare rankings of coaches like that because they, there should be coaching rankings, and there's not. There, there's player rankings, former player rankings, but that has no, very little bearing, as I've, as I've discussed. It doesn't have a huge bearing on, on their coach ranking because there's so many other factors involved with choosing and being a great coach. So I leave you with that. Please don't be that parent who's always talking about how good a player their kids, coach is, or was. It's so annoying. I mean, talk to me about how they, how they coach. Talk to me about how educated they are. Talk to me about how passionate they are, what a great communicator they are, what a great inspirational force they are. Talk to me about the, the X factor that they have. Talk to me about their integrity and their character. You know, those are the things you, you got to stack up and you have to research and you have to know about and, and you should value very highly when choosing a coach, not just the, the ranking. Okay, guys, so I'll leave with that. It was a great show. I enjoyed the discussion as always. And I appreciate all, all the friends uh, signing on and waving. I appreciate the, the entire community of this program. Thank you all for watching. I know everyone has limited time and time is valuable. So I really appreciate anyone who takes the time to listen to me talk and who, who learns and grows from this program. As I mentioned at the onset of the show, if you like the show, please share with friends, let other people know about the program so we can build a larger community. And I will see you guys on the next broadcast. God bless and good night. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt, and the show can be watched live on Facebook. Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the show. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Vamos!